If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with Daniel Lee, a historian based at Queen Mary, University of London, who's also one of BBC Radio 3's new generation thinkers. Daniel is the author of a new book, the SS Officer's Armchair in Search of a Hidden Life, which explores how the chance discovery of a stash of documents hidden within a piece of furniture led him to uncovering the life of SS Officer Robert Griesinger. He spoke to BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar. Daniel, first of all, I wonder if we could talk about the chance discovery that set you off on this journey. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um, I was, I had just finished uh, my PhD in England and I'd moved to Italy, to Florence, to do research at the European University. And I was really new to the city. I didn't know too many people. And after a few weeks, I had a few colleagues and uh, who I'd met over for, for drinks at my place. It just so happened that somebody who I didn't really know that well uh, came uh, and she just, uh, she, she was Dutch. She was beginning a PhD in law. And she just came up to me and she said, oh, you're a historian of the Second World War, I hear. Something really strange just happened to my mum. And I just sort of looked at her. And, because, you know, when you're a historian of the Second World War, people come up to you quite often and they say, oh, you know, I had a grandfather in the resistance or an aunt who was deported, you know. Nobody ever comes up to you and says something just happened. So that immediately was a bit a bit curious for me. Anyway, and she just there and then told me how her mother had, in Amsterdam, had taken this old armchair to be reupholstered. And when she returned to collect it a few days later, the guy who was doing the repair work was was, was visibly cross with her. And he sort of looked at her and he said, well, what is this? I don't do work for Nazis or their families. And she was completely like stunned, thinking, what are, what are you talking about? And he just presented her with this, with this uh, bundle of papers, all belonging to one man. And everything was sort of um, stamped with a Nazi swastika all over it. So she was, you know, she was just looking at these papers. She had absolutely no idea who this man was, Robert Griesinger. Uh, she had bought the chair. So contrary to what the chairmaker had thought, that she had inherited it maybe from her father or somebody, she'd actually, she wasn't Dutch. She'd bought the chair in Prague. She was Czech. Uh, she was a student in Prague in the 1960s. And she needed some objects, some furniture to furnish her student digs. And so, she, you know, she bought this chair. She loved it. And then when, when the family were allowed to leave communist Czechoslovakia in the 1980s, they could take certain objects with them on the train to the Netherlands. So they took this chair. You know, the family had grown up with this chair in their life. When you look at family photos, you sort of see this chair in the background. And, you know, unbeknownst to everybody, it contained uh, inside its cushion 
all of these uh, Nazi era documents belonging to one man. So she basically just told me this story that she'd come across these documents and she wanted to know who was this man and how had his documents ended up hidden inside her armchair that she had sort of done her homework on that had sat in her bedroom for her whole childhood. And so after you, you received these documents, how did you go about pursuing Griesinger's life story? And, and at what point did you decide this was something you wanted to write a book about? Yeah, of, of course. At first, I didn't really think this would be a book. I was just curious to know a little bit more about this guy because uh, I'd never heard of him. You know, I'm a historian of the Second World War. You know, so I just looked in all the traditional places that I could from my desk in Florence. So obviously lots of books. I looked in line and there was just nothing whatsoever about him. And so I presumed, OK, well, he was obviously some nobody who was in Nazi-occupied Prague. The documents were very, very personal. So it's not sort of, uh, you know, a collection of old bus tickets or receipts or something. You know, we're talking about like identity papers, the kind of documents you just can't live without. Passports, uh, stocks and shares that had never been cashed, PhD certificate in law, um, deeply, deeply important identity papers. And on these papers, it was clear that he was a civil servant working in Prague. So, you know, I I uh, sent a few emails, looked online. There was very, very little until uh, I got a, um, a response from one archive in Prague saying, yep, we've got a file on him. So at that point, I went to Prague. I started researching. On the one hand, I was looking for information about him, but I was also really interested in the object itself, this one armchair. I wanted to know everything about the armchair. I wanted to know, you know, how much it had cost, uh, where it was made. Uh, was, was it Czech? Did, did somebody, did Griesinger bring it from Germany? Had he inherited it uh, from a Jewish family, either in Prague or, you know, a, a Jewish family somewhere in Western Europe, whose, fa- whose possessions had been uh, taken from them? This happened all over France and the Netherlands, for instance. Lots of uh, uh, objects were shipped east to furnish Uh, new offices taken over uh, by the Nazis. Anyway, so I found myself in Prague interviewing chairmakers, trying to identify uh, the provenance of the chair, but also really wanting to know more about him uh, and his job in Prague. And it was in Prague then that I discovered a file that said he was in the SS. And this led me to go to Berlin as my next uh, archival visit, uh, go to the SS archives and really find out uh, as much as I could about him from those files. And it was at that moment when I thought, okay, gosh, here, this is a story I really, really want to tell. Uh, so that it was, a, you know, I could tell you a bit more about that, but that, that was really the moment in Berlin with his file that I thought, okay, I've got to tell this man's story. When you researched uh, Griesinger's life, and, and as the book shows, you found out a lot of information about, about him. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about his early life and then how he came to become a member of the SS. Of course. Um, So I think a lot of what I was able to discover about his early life was thanks to documents I discovered in his family's archive. So private papers. I don't mean like a, a, a hidden archival collection somewhere. No, I'm talking about literally somebody's attic and, uh, you know, things I found on bookshelves and in cupboards. Because after months of looking for Griesinger, in official archives and libraries, you know, I really wanted to get more about his, you know, texture and everyday life. I wanted to know as much about 
him as I could, because the whole point of my book is really that, you know, until now we know so much about these guys at the top, you know, your Hitler and Himmlers and all of these people. But there's to understand, you know, the inner workings of a regime like the Third Reich, I just feel like you really need to know more about the millions of people who actually contributed to it and made up its ranks. And it just seemed to me that so little had been written about these people uh, until now, these enablers. So what I did was I, I tried as much as I could to visit archives, but then when these ran out, I just got so frustrated that I wanted to know more about him as a person. And that proved really, really hard from the sources in public archives. So one day I was in Stuttgart and I was so frustrated, I just got the public phone book the directory, and just started phoning everybody in Stuttgart with the last name Griesinger. Um, and of course, people thought I was trying to sell them something, and they just hung up uh, a lot of the time. But anyway, one person eventually said, oh, yes, Robert Griesinger, that was my father's brother. You know, why are you interested in him? Anyway, so I went to visit the next day, and it just turned out that um, the nephew, his nephew, Jochen, was still living in the Griesinger family house. So this was the house that Robert had lived in as a young man. And it was amazing actually visiting this house because the first thing you see in Stuttgart is that this house just does not look like any of the other houses in the neighborhood. The house, upon arrival, it just has these enormous columns, these pillars sort of reaching up from the ground. And it turned out, I, I, I discovered that Griesinger was actually the son of an American. His father was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, in 1870, and had moved to Imperial Germany in, uh, when, after the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, when times were tough economically there. But anyway, uh, as a sign like to remember his heritage in the American South, the blueprints of his house, which I discovered, really showed that he wanted, to, uh, he wanted re constant reminders of his roots there. So he asked the architect to design his house based on a southern plantation. Anyway, so just interviewing his family members, his, his, uh, it began with his nephew, you know, that obviously was able to give me loads of family stories about him and they could tell me everything. They, they were wonderful, full of knowledge about the family's roots, uh, both in the American South and also in Germany. And after several meetings, they trusted me more and it was then that they gave me access to more and more family papers. So that's when, you know, cupboards would be, you know, drawers would be pulled open and sort of things would emerge. And one of the most important documents for this book was that I had full access to all of his mother's papers. And his mother kept, she was, she wrote every single day. She, um, she kept a diary about her life, but she also documented her son's life. Uh, and she wrote from the day he was born until the day he went to university in uh, 1925. So these were the documents that really, really allowed me to get an insight into his life as a young man. Um, so to give one example of this, I was able to really understand what it meant to be a German young man who had been born in this decade between 1900 and 1910, this war youth generation, which is, you know, other historians have written about uh, this generation, so important for our understanding of why people uh, later flocked to Nazism. You know, these guys were, were way too young to have fought in the First World War. 
and you know they just they didn't know that, that that Germany was going to lose the First World War until it finally happened in the autumn of 1918. You know, Germany hadn't been in, uh, invaded. And so when the, when the defeat eventually came in autumn 1918, it was for this generation of young men like Robert Griesinger, who was born in 1906, it was the total collapse of everything. It was, it just shattered um, his life, this total national humiliation and disorder that followed in the wake, uh, this threat of communism. You know, he came from this deeply patriotic, uh, right-wing, conservative, Protestant family. And so the collapse in 1918 was really something that just was going to shape the rest of his life. It just threw him uh, into these right-wing circles. So by the time he's 16, 17, he's, his mother takes to her diary to write, to write all these, you know, my son is so right-wing, he's, he, he, he's, he's even more right-wing than I am. And, you know, she is really right-wing uh, when you look at some of the stuff that, that, that she's writing. So that's kind of the milieu in which he grows up in. On the one hand, this German militaristic, uh, patriotic, anti-Weimar, anti-communist, anti-Jewish, but also he's inheriting a lot of these ideas from the American South, these ideas of of race, which come through his uh, grandmother's side, his American grandmother, who he lives with, who he's extremely close to, um, who had been born in Louisiana, who's, who's... you know, whose family had been in Louisiana since the 1720s. And just looking at the records in Louisiana, we just see time and time again that everybody in the family is somehow involved in in owning an enslaved person. And these are the kind of stories that he would have grown up with uh, in the, 19, you know, between 1906 and by the time he leaves for university in 1925. So as, as a young man, what and, and when he joins the SS, what kind of activities does that involve at this point? So he joins the party very late. And I, that's actually, that was actually not meant to be a, uh, a joke or a play on words. What I meant to say was he joins Nazism very late. He joins the party extremely late. He joins the party in 1937. So years after um, most of the well-known figures uh, who we know about, he is a civil servant. He's got a PhD in law from a fancy university. He's going places in the Southwest uh he isn't really interested in nazism to be honest he you know just from looking at his mother's diary we know exactly uh the sort of politics the sort of party that he would have been attracted to um the again this very this royalist right-wing nationalist party um the dnvp for example and there were loads of other parties like that he people like Riesinger didn't need to turn to the nazis especially in a place like stuttgart which didn't really feel uh, the consequences of the depression until far later than most other parts of Germany. So it's unlikely that Griesinger would ever have even voted for the Nazi party. But when they come to power in in 33, he's not a member. And the Nazis within weeks uh, pass a law to say, okay, well, no, you, we're putting a moratorium on now, on membership. So you can't just suddenly join. Um, those days are over. So Griesinger needed to make a choice in in spring, summer 1933. He knew he he wanted to work his way up the civil service in uh, in Stuttgart, in Württemberg. And he 
decided, okay, to do that, I need to show some kind of involvement with this new Nazi party, which, okay, let's face it, they're a little vulgar, uh, not the kind of thing I would have seen myself joining. But, you know, if they're they're going to stamp out the communist menace, then, and be really patriotic and anti-Weimar, etc., then, yeah, okay, I can, I can bet on this horse. So that's what he does. He joins the SS in September 33, And at first, he's not really that into it. He just sort of, he pays his membership fees like everybody else. He doesn't wear a uniform. He sort of dips his toe in. And it's only, it's just not really something that takes over his life. I mean, before I wrote this book, I had presumed that SS membership was a full-time job. I thought that if you were in the SS, that was it. You went around wearing your black uniform, beating up Jews, rounding up communists, etc. And this was your existence. But for people like Riesinger, that just wasn't the case. For people like them, it was a pastime. It was a part-time thing. He got more involved when he wanted to, uh, you know, to be promoted or to to show his loyalty. But at this stage, in the early to mid-1930s, it was something that he just sort of did occasionally. So he would do marches, they would sing songs, they would attend lectures, they would go to events with their wives, and their wives could meet one another, and the families could, etc. You know, they were meant to be this sort of, you know, racial elite uh, that was going to drive Germany forward. But, you know, from looking at the evidence, that just doesn't seem to be the case at all uh, with people who were only ever part-time members, which I would like to add were the majority You know, most people were not these concentration camp guards who would have gone every single day to work wearing their uniform. Griesinger wore a a beige suit every day to work while he was working as a lawyer in the mid-1930s. And he was working at that time at the Stuttgart Gestapo. But no, the SS at that time was not the be-all and end-all for him and others like him. So does this mean we need to potentially revise our vision of the SS as having been these particularly fanatical Nazis. I would say that was one of the takeaways for me from this book. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of these people just, um, of course, if you were a full-time Waffen-SS or there were certain uh, parts of the SS, which were, like you say, extremely fanatical, then of course. I mean, one thing is just, the SS is just this deeply complicated uh organization structure that people think that you know historians have written about and that's the end of that and we've got a grip on it but from doing the research from this book i can tell you that it's just not the case it is so complicated there is so much more work we still need to do on 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 the structures that that made it up and that yeah i think it is time for um for somebody to really Uh, take it apart if it's possible. I mean, let's not forget so many of the archives were destroyed. I mean, in the case of Griesinger, his file um, in Berlin, his SS file, the odds were actually against me discovering it because as we know, the SS burnt a lot of their archives at the end of the war. And then so much of it was lost to Allied bombings. So only a third of these individual dossiers actually remain. Uh, Two thirds were destroyed, but I was very fortunate that I was able to get my hands on on his file. Without without his file, I don't think there would be there would be a book. And from what you're saying about the SS and Robert Griesinger's involvement in it, would he still have been either complicit or aware of some of the crimes that were going on in Nazi Germany? Robert Griesinger was a perpetrator. There is absolutely no doubt about it. However small a cog he was in this machine, uh, and you know, he wasn't that small when you look at what he, his, his professional life compared to a lot of others. But he knew exactly what was going on from 
you know, the minute he would have joined uh, the Gestapo, he, he joins the Gestapo as a full-time job in July 1935 until he joined. So between 33 and 35, a lot of the work in Nazi Germany, which is aimed at, you know, the persecuting and uh, parts of the population, as you know, was, was aimed at, you know, uh, the communists or the social democrats. Uh, but it was really only after that they had either been rounded up and put in camps all over Germany, so all very close to Stuttgart, there were several camps, uh, even before he joined the Gestapo, actually, he was on a posting uh, close to Stuttgart, where they had an enormous uh, concentration camp in Ulm for uh, social democrats and communists. But anyway, by the time he joins the Gestapo in 35, that is, it's at that point that the, the job sort of has sort of been done, with the, that the threat has been... Uh, has been taken care of with the communists and social democrats and that the Nazis can, can turn to the Jews. So while he is working at his desk in the Gestapo, uh, he's working in this, this enormous building in the center of Stuttgart um, called the Hotel Silber, former police station. And, you know, he's working as a lawyer there. And a lot of what he's doing is making sure that the anti-Semitic orders, which are being passed from the top, from Berlin, are being put in place locally. He's making sure that people, administrators all across the state of Württemberg are putting these measures into place. So, yes, he's not physically, you know, getting in his black car, in his black uniform and rounding up Jews and taking them uh, to be tortured. But my God, he is upstairs at his office typing away at his typewriter and he knows all too well about what's going on in the basement of the Hotel Silber. From doing my research in, in the city of Stuttgart, you know, I met elderly people who still today refuse to even take the street that Hotel Silber is on because of the, of the stories they heard of children about the, uh, the torture that goes on in that basement. So there is absolutely no doubt that somebody like Riesinger would have been more than complicit in some of the um, the crimes that were being committed against the Jewish population during that time. And then in 1939, what does the outbreak of World War II mean for Griesinger? Well, the outbreak, outbreak of World War II was a disaster for Griesinger because he it showed for him that he'd actually bet on the wrong horse for a lot of the time because he had this very cushy position at the Gestapo as a lawyer with a lot of his friends. Uh, and a lot of these lawyers at the Gestapo, by sort of 1937-38, a lot of them had joined uh, some of these Nazi organizations or, or offices in Berlin as, as their full-time jobs, uh, such as the SS, whereas Griesinger didn't do that. He was still an administrator, he was still a civil servant, a lawyer, but he was working in a rural part of uh, Württemberg by that time, about 20, 30 miles south of Stuttgart in Hernheim. And so that meant that for somebody like Griesinger, he, he was automatically called up to work for the Wehrmacht, which was a total disaster. You know, here we have a man with a PhD in law in his early 30s who was going places as a civil servant. And he has to be a, a, an ordinary soldier like everybody else. So he gets posted to France, to, to, to the Western uh, Front. So while all the fighting is going on in Poland, uh, he's sent to France 
to sit on the border. And his letters from that time, you just see him totally frustrated. He does not want to be in the Wehrmacht. He wants an office job somewhere in the East. And by that time, uh, Prague had already uh, been occupied by the Nazis. And he was writing to his friends in Prague, his university friends, his university friends, Uh, gave him the opportunity to meet this entire network of of very uh, like-minded people from all over Germany. You know, he was at the most right-wing university in Germany, Tübingen. Uh, He became friends with a lot of people there who would later um, serve in Nazi-occupied Prague. So he's writing to these people, sort of begging them to get him a position there. And it looks as though at one point he might actually end up being posted there. But for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. So Griesinger is sitting on the border between France and Germany. His wife is is deeply pregnant at that time. She goes into labour early, so he's allowed to sort of go and visit his newborn daughter and then returns to the front. And at that point, you know, the, the Nazi invasion of France in spring 1940 begins. And, you know, it's, it's within five weeks, the French army is defeated and Griesinger and his unit find themselves in the centre of France. And it's a wonderful time uh, there for his unit because, you know, they're able to sort of go into French shops, take all this wonderful produce, um, send it back to Germany for their wives, girlfriends, mothers, daughters, whatever. Uh, but also what they're doing is um, preparing for the landings uh, that were going to take place any minute against the United Kingdom. Because, of course, you know, everybody knew in spring, summer 1940, that Germany was going to win the war. It was, it was only a matter of time. You know, only a crazy person would think that uh, Britain all by itself would have somehow managed to hold out. So, you know, America wasn't in the war. The Soviet Union wasn't in the war. So from France, Griesinger and his um, his unit are just practicing, you know, doing all this sort of uh, training drills in the rivers around him in the centre of France, preparing for the... Uh, invasion of Britain, Operation Sea Lion, which, as we know, didn't ever happen. So he gets sent back to Stuttgart eventually, uh, still desperate to try and do something with his life because he sees all these wonderful opportunities opening up in the East. Uh, and, And that's where he wants to be. He's desperate, as I keep saying, to have a position of power at an office somewhere in the East. And this just seems further and further away in June 1941, when he and his unit suddenly find themselves heading east uh, towards the Soviet Union. And so you kind of, again, have this impression that someone in the SS would be absolutely desperate to be in the Soviet Union, get, you know, able to actually fight and kill communists and Jews. Was that the case for him? For, for, for Griesinger and the men of his unit, what was amazing from their letters and memoirs and all sorts of things from that time was that these guys had absolutely no idea why they were even going east in the first place. There they were in June 1941, suddenly heading east. And they were thinking, well, gosh, what are we doing? You know, we've got this wonderful uh, pact with the Soviet Union. So we're obviously not going there. So maybe we're going to go to Palestine or British India and and launch, you know, a a fight there against the British or something. You know, some of these guys even went out and and purchased guidebooks or language books in Arabic and Farsi. The last thing on their mind at that time was an invasion against the Soviet Union. But as we know, uh, that's exactly what happened, the secret war, uh, the secret invasion in, in June 1941. Historians for years after the war truly believed that when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, there was this sort of, 
you know, gentlemanly war, if you like, between the Wehrmacht and the Red Army, that, you know, the, 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 the Wehrmacht would advance and would only ever shoot against uh, Soviet uh, partisans or, or soldiers. But of course, in the last 20 years, we've seen this to be complete, you know, nonsense. And that the Wehrmacht, ordinary German soldiers, were deeply implicated in a lot of the atrocities that were taking place in uh, June and July 1941 against the local population uh, in Ukraine as they were invading and heading east. We know about these Einsatzgruppen and these specialized killing squads of SS men who were supposed to uh, you know, go and kill uh, Jews and other uh, potential uh, enemies. And the, the sort of dirty work would be left to them. But when we actually start looking at the records, we see that this is not at all what was happening. And that actually the Wehrmacht and ordinary soldiers were working in tandem with a lot of these uh, killing squads and often separately. So as Griesinger's unit ad advances east, we see multiple instances in which his unit um, takes part in uh, executions of the local Je uh, Jewish population without any SS involvement. These were ordinary German soldiers carrying out some of these killings against the local population. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The Nazi regime was not made up of these total uh, monsters, but it's made up of ordinary Nazis, ordinary people like Robert Griesinger. you detail in the book some of your own family members who, who lost their lives in the holocaust were in the same kind of area that Griesinger Griesinger may have been operating in did, did that affect how you approached the writing of this part I mean it definitely made me sit up and think oh my gosh how is this possible because you know I this was not meant to be in any way a family story I was writing about you know, somebody whose documents I discovered in an armchair, whose career I was trying to put back together piece by piece. I was not in any way thinking that this would any, uh, connect to me somehow. But, you know, I I had four, four grandparents born in London, so I never really thought that the, the Holocaust had too much to do with my family. But, you know, one of my grandmothers, her father was from Ukraine. And I remember when I was doing the research for this book, just asking her more and more about, you know, where my great-grandfather had come from. And I knew the name of the shtetl. And I I had this little map in front of me. And I, as I was plotting Griesinger's route across Ukraine, you know, which let's not forget, it's the largest country in Europe. He actually went through the same shtetl that my uh, ancestors had, had lived, had, had, and had, had uh, you know, had lived in before coming to London in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, you know, that was a massive wake-up call for me, seeing that, you know, Griesinger would have, seeing that Griesinger would have interacted, or would, would have been in this small shtetl in Western Ukraine at the same time as some of some relatives who had not been able uh, to leave and who, who might have still uh, been there at the moment that the Wehrmacht and later the killing squadrons arrived in July, August uh, 1941. And this really inspired me to start looking a bit more into these relatives, to find out everything I could about the relatives who hadn't uh, left for Britain at the beginning of the 20th century, and to start doing a little bit more uh, family history and find out exactly what became 
of those who, who remained. And, and also, you know, some questions I couldn't answer because it was possible to like locate some aunts, uncles and cousins and what have you. But then, you know, when you start going more uh, horizontally, it starts to get a little messier and you can't always plot family history as easily uh, as you can looking at a vertical axis. And now following his time in the East, Griesinger does eventually get that posting to Prague. And I wonder if you could give us a sense of what it was like for him, what his life was like as a Nazi operator living in Prague during the war. So Griesinger is delighted with this posting, of course. By the time he gets posted there, so we're talking beginning of 1943, things had started to get, he, he had sent, got sent back to Stuttgart because he was wounded uh, at the Battle of Kiev. He spent a lot of time in hospital after that. And he's wounded in, in uh, sent back to hospital in Stuttgart. And then beginning of 1943, he suddenly, eventually rather, receives this amazing transfer. And he's delighted because at that point, a lot of the bombings, uh, the aerial bombings from Britain hadn't really managed to reach Stuttgart, which let's not forget is really south um, in Germany. But by that time, there are uh, a few um, sort of... Um, aerial uh, bombardment, bombardments that do begin to take place at that time. So it is starting to get a little messy, uh, for want of a better word, in Stuttgart. So Prague, for somebody like Griesinger, is the dream posting. Better than Paris, for sure. You know, we're talking like German cinemas, German music, German theatre, German architecture. No bombing whatsoever uh, by the Allies at that point. It is extremely safe. Germans had all the best rations. They could shop at whatever time they wanted. He could send his children to the fanciest German schools. He and his wife could socialize uh, in some of the most uh, prestigious circles. And it's his job in Prague, thanks to his connections from Stuttgart, he, he's able to land up at uh, the Ministry of Economics and Labour. So a lot of what that ministry was doing, it was such an important ministry in Nazi-occupied Prague, a lot of what they were doing was making sure that the, the economy in the new, in the protectorate, which I suppose today would translate as the area of the Czech Republic, which would be uh, Bohemia and Moravia. Uh, he, people like Griesinger and his people in his uh, administration were making sure that the, the economy of the protectorate was working to benefit the German Reich. That was the most important thing for them, making sure that Czech uh, factories and other sort of institutions were all being uh, converted to work entirely for the war effort. And of course, this meant making sure that Czech workers were being sent to do forced labour either in uh, in the protectorate or often in Germany and Austria in, dis in dis you know terrible working conditions you know hundreds of thousands of Czech workers were sent away to do this compulsory labor and that was and so that was much of what he was responsible for and so again here can we see his complicity in some of the crimes of the Third Reich again absolutely no doubt about it he is in it's 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 because of people like Griesinger that these uh, um, Czech workers are being sent away and that some of those Jews, I mean, look, by the time he arrived in Prague, there were very few Jews left who, who lived in the Czech lands uh, beyond the walls of Theresienstadt. That there were, of course, some exceptions for those who, you know, who were maybe a, a half Jewish or who had been married to an Aryan or, or what have you. So there were still some. But, you know, a lot of these were, were sent away to do forced labour. And that's exactly the kind of people that Griesinger 
was responsible for, making sure that these Jewish men or half-Jewish men or whatever you want to call them were, you know, uh, working every day in indescribable conditions for the German Reich. And that, you know, uh, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that uh, Robert Griesinger was a perpetrator. Um, and I think, you know, just from looking at his family, you know, like I said, he's having this wonderful life in Prague. He, he loves his children. He has a, you know, a, a very happy life with his wife. But I think that, you know, his, his story is, is really a chilling reminder of how, how effortlessly, rather, people can switch uh, from being these, you know, these wonderful, kind people to being, you know, cruel and cunning and mischievous. And that the Nazi regime was not made up of these total uh, monsters, but it's made up of ordinary Nazis, ordinary people like Robert Griesinger. Do we know whether he had much interaction with the Jewish community, either within Germany or Prague later on? So it's a great question. For somebody like, for somebody from Stuttgart, there was, there was never really much of a, a Jewish community uh, to speak of. I mean, there were Jews in Stuttgart, of course, but we're really, you know, we're not talking Berlin or Frankfurt. We're talking about a population of maybe four or 5,000 Jews, max, out of a total uh, population of Stuttgart that would have been about 400,000 at that time. So Jews made up a tiny part of the sort of the fabric of um, society in, in, in Stuttgart. And so as a young man, Griesinger probably didn't know too many Jews. I mean, his mother writes that the, in her diary at one instance that she's she comes across a nice Jewish family uh, in, I think, 1917. Um, but other than that, there's very few mention. I mean, you know, deeply anti-Semitic, but they probably don't know any Jews because, you know, there's constantly, his mother would cut out uh, sort of extracts in the newspaper that caught her eye. And often these were written by extreme anti-Semites writing about, you know, Jews in the most uh, in the most terrible ways. Um, you know, uh, this is something we get at the end of the First World War, the fact that the Jews are, of course, responsible for the defeat. Um, so he grows up in this anti-Semitic environment. From the archives of his school, I was able to see uh, that there were 19 Jewish boys in his entire school. There were 552 boys and there were 19 Jews. Um, and there was only one other Jewish guy in his class, a boy called Hugo Stern, who I was able to, uh, I was actually able to interview his daughter at one point, uh, who lives in upstate New York, to find out a little bit about uh, her father and his memories of high school. Um, and in terms of university, there wouldn't have been any Jews there because Jews were banned from Tübingen. There were no Jewish students, no Jewish professors, but again, extremely anti-Semitic, uh, it was part of uh, the culture. When he is working, and this is where we get to an interesting part in his life, when he is working at the Gestapo, so from 1935 onwards, he actually, and again, this is another moment where I sort of sit up and think, oh my gosh, how is this possible? I thought I knew everything about the Nazis. How could, how could this happen? Anyway, he's living next door, a Jewish family, called Rothschild. You know, the next door neighbours were a family called Rothschild in Stuttgart. And I just thought that this was so extraordinary that, you know, a, a Gestapo worker, an SS member, Robert Kriesinger, could live next door to this family. And I, you know, I had to go and see the house. As soon as I saw the address, I thought, well, you know, 
what does it mean to live next door? Are we talking, you know, a hundred meters away? You don't know your neighbors? Are we, are we, do we mean anything else? The current owners very kindly let me in and walk around the house. And, you know, we are talking about a semi-detached house. You know, they shared a wall with the neighbors. They're, the front doors were, were a couple of yards apart. I was able to find out what had happened to the Rothschild. Uh, I, I tracked down their granddaughter who told me that, you know, the family had been observant Jews in Stuttgart at that time, that they would have definitely have had a mezuzah, so the uh, the parchment uh, uh, scripture in a small box uh, that sort of is, is fixed to the door of most, uh, of lots of Jewish homes. And this is something that Griesinger would have seen. He would have seen them lighting their uh, candles uh, every Friday night to welcome in uh, the Sabbath. And again, um, I was uh, one in one part of this book. I sort of go off and really find out exactly what happened to the Rothschilds, how uh, their life in Stuttgart, living next to Griesinger in the 1930s, and then what became of them during the Holocaust when uh, they were deported, the couple were deported to Auschwitz, uh, having lived in France for four years during the occupation. Now, as we know from the start of, of this story, his documents remained in Prague, and actually he himself never never made it out of Prague and back to Germany. So I wonder if you could um, tell us what we know about his final moments. Of course. So yeah, beginning even at the very start of my investigation, when I wanted to know so much about him, I just... You know, I presumed that like most Germans who had been in Prague in 1945, he had somehow made it out and then just picked up life at the end of the war. Because as you know, and as your listeners will know, so few Germans were ever really punished for their role in uh, Nazi crimes. We're talking about total drop in the ocean. I think 8,000 people went on trial or something. When we think of the, you know, 10 million members of the party, uh, in 1945. So I just presumed that Griesinger, like like most, uh, had just, you know, picked up his life, became a lawyer or a civil servant, and then had probably died in the 70s or 80s. But it became very, very hard as to find out anything specific about him. I knew he had these daughters. It, it was impossible to even know their names, given that they were children in the, in the archival documents that I was looking at. So I didn't know their last name, their married name. So it uh, you know, women are always getting written out of history for this very reason, that it's so hard just to follow um, the female line. But uh, uh, it was thanks to their cousin, the nephew who I had discovered, who was able to put me in touch with them. And so from talking to family, I got a good sense of what had happened to Robert Griesinger. They showed me a death certificate and they told me that in spring 1945, Griesinger was killed and that his body was thrown on a mass grave. Now, who knows whether this was is true or not. Uh, I obviously went to Prague and started researching this, story, this family story that I had heard. It was something that his mother, who, had, you know, he was a, a real mummy's boy. And this is something that comes across again and again in his documents, uh, in his mother's diaries. Uh, and after the war, she just, you know, took to a period of total mourning for the loss of her son. She had this enormous bust of her son's head uh, commissioned, a bronze bust, and sort of put candles around it. And, you know, uh, she never got over the loss of her son. 
But I wanted to know a little bit more about, you know, whether or not this, this story was true. So it just, it was very hard, but eventually I did go to several archives and visited like a number of cemeteries in Prague to try and locate his grave, which I eventually discovered. Uh, and it, at that time in Prague, let's not forget, we've got after six years of horrific German occupation, a lot of Czechs uh, took their revenge on the former uh, occupier. And there were lots of cases in spring and summer of 1945 of Germans being subjected to, you know, horrific treatment, um, either being shot or or tortured or or whatever, you know, which, which pale in comparison where we think about the torture that the Czechs had undergone during the six years of, of occupation, of course. But nevertheless, it was a terrible place to be if you were German, uh, Prague, that is, in spring 1945. I found documents that showed he was in a hospital. He had dysentery in spring, ni- spring and summer 1945. And that was actually listed as his cause of death. The reason that he had died was because he had this horrible illness. And, you know, whether or not this is true, who can say? We see time and time again stories of uh, people Germans in Czech hospitals being uh, being in their hospital beds, and all of a sudden you have the Red Army or Czech partisans coming into the hospital ward and either doing shootings, uh, carrying out shootings, or in some cases even leading uh, these Germans to the top floor of the hospital and just throwing them off the roof. And there'd be sort of a band of of men at the bottom shooting up into the air to see whether or not the German would hit the floor uh, or whether he would be shot uh, by bullets before doing so. But of course, stories like this don't end up in the archives uh, or on death certificates. You know, stories of some bit of German being shot in a hospital. Cause of death is often dysentery or a whooping cough or, or one of these horrible illnesses. So it's it's very, very hard to say exactly what happened. But we know that he let he he sent his family away at the beginning of 1945 to Liechtenstein, which is where his in-laws lived, and he never made it out. And they were just waiting for him uh, for, for, for months and months and months until the news eventually came to them in Liechtenstein that he had been killed in Prague. Now, as you alluded to in that last answer, you've spoken to many members of, of his family for the book, including you know, his daughters. Oh, how much did they know about his Nazi career and how do they view a man who on the one hand was a loving father but on the other hand committed some terrible crimes? His daughters were absolutely fundamental in for me in the writing of this book. Fortunately I, I have some really fantastic photographs which I was given access to by the family which you know of course gave me permission to to print them in the book. Uh, they answered all my questions. They were so open to me. So I'm just truly grateful to them for that. Um, they knew nothing whatsoever about their father's Nazi past. They grew up without a father because he had not returned uh, to Liechtenstein uh, in 1945. Their mother remarried very quickly. She had children uh, and there was never really any reminders of their father at home. There were obviously no photographs or portraits or anything like that. There were no uh, documents. You know, they'd never even seen their father's handwriting. They, uh, daughters, you know, they were, when he died, they were sort of five and eight years old. So the older daughter, Yuta, really 
remembers her father very strongly. They had a real connection. Whereas the younger daughter, Barbara, remembers him uh, that bit less, if at all. Now, they tried, they told me, to ask their mother again and again after the war for information about their father. But as was the case with so many German children at that time, the past was this taboo. The Nazi period was uh, not to be spoken of. And a lot of strategies and techniques were developed by German parents so that they could avoid talking to their children about some of those acts uh, that had been committed during the 30s and 40s. And this, the Griesinger family was no exception. So the daughters did try to ask their mother questions and they tried to ask their grandmother and other family members, but they were just met with silence, a wall of silence, basically. So by the time I came to them and sort of, you know, returned the documents to them, they wanted to know so much from me. And it was this very curious interaction because usually with oral history, you know, historians, we sort of interview our subjects and we ask lots of questions and then we go on our merry way. But in this case, I would ask myself, I would ask all these questions and then they would ask me loads of questions, which is, you know, I'd been totally unprepared for. They wanted to know uh, what I had discovered. They wanted to know what part of the Nazi organization he had been a member of and why he had joined. And so there was a very strange dynamic developing uh, between us. They, they really wanted to know from me as much, uh, as much information as I could tell them. I'm not sure the extent to which they felt comfortable hearing the information, but I don't ever get a sense from talking to them that they ever didn't want me to pursue the research or that they didn't want to know these answers. On the contrary, they wanted to hear from me and to see evidence of what their father had done. Having, having researched this story and written this book, are there any lessons or ideas that come out of it that are particularly important to you about things like the nature of culpability and what it means to be a, quote, ordinary Nazi? Sure. I mean, yeah, I think that there are a lot of lessons to learn from looking at the case of Robert Griesinger. So what I, I, I think that today at this time of extremist politics, it's extremely easy for us to focus on those who are at the very top of the regime. Um, and to think about these extreme personalities. Uh, but I think as a, the question for future historians is who are the people who embrace these messages and are the ones who are enabling um, them to be in power? So what I try to do in my book is to figure out why this nationalism is so attractive, because these individual figures at the very top of the regime that we see today and the ones we see in the 1930s and 40s, they are not so singular. Of course, they are facilitated and they have a crew of enablers, like pe people like Robert Griesinger. So I think that at this time today of extremist politics, um, what we see when we look at the career of somebody like Robert Griesinger is this very ordinary bureaucrat, normal guy who's interested in his family and career advancement, who nonetheless is living side by side uh, with the people he was persecuting. I think people like this are much more, well, the, they're much more a product of the mainstream than we tend uh, to realise. That was Daniel Lee. 
The SS Officer's Armchair in Search of a Hidden Life is out now, published by Jonathan Cape. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for the second episode of our new series, The Princes in the Tower, A Medieval Murder Mystery. Mm-hmm.